0: Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgoode Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law.
1: Today, alumnus
0: Anil Kapoor of Kapoor Barristers will have four questions for Osgoode Professor Emerita Jamie Cameron on the topic of not criminally responsible offenders. Jamie Cameron is one of Canada's senior constitutional scholars whose research and teaching interests focus on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, freedom of expression and the press the Supreme Court of Canada, criminal law, American constitutional law, and judicial biography. A teacher, professor at Osgoode for 30 years until her recent retirement in December 2019, Professor Cameron has been a member of the Ontario Review Board since 2013. The board, which is made up of judges, lawyers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and members of the public appointed by the Ontario Lieutenant Governor and Council, annually reviews the status of persons who have been found to be not criminally responsible or unfit to stand trial for criminal offenses on account of a mental disorder. Welcome, Professor Cameron. Thank you. Let's get started with question one. How does the criminal law deal with mental illness, and what happens to offenders who commit a crime while mentally ill?
1: So, first of all, as most everyone knows, mental illness is pervasive in our society, and it's also pervasive in the criminal justice system, and it it can arise in different contexts. So, one way it arises in the criminal justice system is where a person is not fit. To stand trial. So in some instances a person is too mentally ill to go through the process of a criminal trial and so that's one way it arises in the system. A second uh, very important context for mental illness is of course the prison system and I think it's fairly well known that a substantial percentage of the prison population in Canada whether federal or provincial suffers from some form of mental illness. Um, And so adequate treatment and issues like solitary confinement have been very prominent in public debate in recent years. I'll just sort of say parenthetically that mental illness is highly variable. But the third way, which is what we're here to talk about, that mental illness can affect uh, or interact with the criminal justice system is in situations where a person is found NCR or not criminally responsible as we call it now and this is the situation when a person's mental illness is so serious at the time that they commit a criminal offense that it is wrong in principle to hold them responsible for that offense and they are designated as NCR instead. So the former designation was insanity and we used to find offenders not guilty by reason of insanity, but now the the designation we used is not criminally responsible. And so when a person is found not criminally responsible, there is no verdict of guilty, and there's no verdict of acquittal. So the NCR verdict is is a special verdict, and it's a verdict that diverts the offender away from the system of punishment and into a special system of forensic mental health that is aimed at treatment rather than punishment. Maybe I could just finish by explaining that the threshold for um, a defense of not criminally responsible is very high under the criminal code. So essentially a person can be found NCR when their mental disorder essentially prevents them from appreciating what actions they are taking or doing um, or knowing that their actions are wrong. So I think this is kind of hard to understand for those who don't have any um, familiarity with uh, this kind of mental illness but what it usually means is that a person is actively psychotic and 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 essentially that means also experiencing a break with reality. So when they're in a break with reality, uh, they may be subject to delusions, powerful delusions, which are not rooted in reality. They can also be experiencing hallucinations and and many times these hallucinations are command hallucinations. Uh, individuals with this kind of disorder can hear voices that tell them to do things Um, and so um, the reason that we don't hold individuals responsible and punish them for these actions is that they're in a state of disorder that really prevents them from being responsible for the things they do.
0: I wanted to ask you know a lot of people Uh, members of the public think that, oh, the person got off, it's a defense, you know, he just got up and claimed insanity and really he's irresponsible, he should be held guilty for his murderous actions. Um, Can you help us understand a little bit more about um, the threshold and how it gets proven and whether or not those feelings amongst some members of the public are valid or invalid?
1: I think one of the difficulties with NCR verdicts is that they are little understood by members of the public, and so it's two things to my mind are really very, very essential. The first is that a person can be so disordered that they really don't know what they're doing, and if they don't know what they're doing, it violates one of the uh, fundamental assumptions of the criminal justice system, which is that we punish individuals for the actions they choose to do that cause harm to others. NCR is just one of several criminal law defenses, and so it's worthwhile to point that out. The second thing, though, is that, you know, for a person who meets the very high threshold of being at that level of disorder, when you think about it, it's not particularly effective to punish them because the mental disorder remains untreated. And because it remains untreated, punishment doesn't do much to protect the safety of the public because the person can serve their criminal sentence and then be back out in the community, still suffering a mental disorder and potentially still posing a risk to public safety. And so um, I think uh, I think it's essential to have buy-in to the basic the basic concept of the NCR system the forensic system which is that treatment actually does serve the public interest. You asked whether you know it's like getting off mm-hmm. it's true that there is no verdict of guilty and it's true, as we've been discussing, that a person does not have a custodial sentence at a prison. It really varies for NCR offenders, but for them to go through the system and to be cleared by the review board and given what we refer to as an absolute discharge can take quite a bit of time. And the reason for that is that a person who has found NCR comes under the jurisdiction of the review boards and is not Discharged in the sense of being completely free again hmm. until the board makes a decision that the person is not a significant threat to public safety. So that a course of treatment can and usually does last a lot longer in a forensic criminal justice system than a criminal sentence.
0: Well, there have been a number of high-profile NCR verdicts in the past several years. There was the case of Vince Lee, who stabbed, beheaded, and cannibalized a 22-year-old man aboard a Winnipeg-bound bus in 2008. Another involved an unemployed MBA grad with severe untreated psychos- schizophrenia Sorry, who uh, fatally stabbed a woman in the Shoppers Drug Mart in Toronto. Are these
1: kinds of NCR cases, is that what you would typically see Uh, Those kinds of cases are quite few and far between. They do not describe the general NCR population. The other thing to note, and I think it applies to Vince Lee, although I haven't checked his circumstances recently. One of the great tragedies of mental illness is that it goes untreated. Mm -hmm. And when it goes untreated, you can have catastrophic consequences. But some or many of the individuals who commit really quite graphic offenses when they are untreated and actively psychotic are highly treatable. So one of the things that's important to note and is very redemptive about the system is that many of the NCR offenders are highly amenable to treatment. They're amenable to treatment by medication and if they are able to comply with treatment and participate in their rehabilitation, they can reach a point where they no longer pose a threat to the public safety, despite the fact that the offense that brought them into the system is one that's very, very difficult to understand. Well,
0: this brings me to question two, and I wanted to ask you. Um, You mentioned in your previous answer forensic criminal justice. I wanted to ask you, what is forensic criminal justice, and how does the review board system work for NCR offenders in a practical way, as well as those who are deemed unfit to stand trial?
1: Okay, so the forensic criminal justice system is essentially outlined in Part 20.1 of the Criminal Code, and it establishes a fairly structured and fairly comprehensive framework for the review boards which exist in every province in Canada as well as in the territories. And what the criminal code does is to set up a system to deal with those who have been found not criminally responsible and typically the way it works is that once a verdict verdict of NCR is found the individual comes under the jurisdiction of the review boards, and the review boards are responsible for determining whether all NCR offenders are a significant threat or not, and while they remain a significant threat, the review boards are responsible for making orders or dispositions that determine where they will be detained or where they will live, what level of privileges or freedoms they may have, and when and in what circumstances they no longer pose a significant threat to public safety. So so if I can just focus on the NCR offender. Right. Uh,
0: Once the NCR offender comes under the jurisdiction of the review board, is that it for the court or does the court have any other role to play with respect to that offender?
1: Typically, the court does not, although we have some qualifications for dual status offenders and the high risk offender, but we'll leave those to the side. Uh, the, the the review boards have the authority and the jurisdiction to determine when and if a person should be absolutely discharged from the criminal justice system. So the end point in the review board's process for the NCR offender is a decision of absolute discharge from the review board. and. Up to the point in time that a person receives an absolute discharge, that person is under review board jurisdiction. There is an annual hearing and the review board, which sits as a panel of five, will hear from the hospital. And in a slightly formal way, it's an informal hearing. Uh, The review board will hear from the hospital and um, from counsel for the NCR as well as counsel for the Crown. And basically the purpose of the review every year is to ask that question about significant threat and decide on an order. So when a person first comes into the NCR system, the forensic mental health system, they often are on what's called a detention order. Mm -hmm. So the detention order detains them at a named hospital. There are several forensic hospitals in Ontario. So they will be under a detention order, for instance, at CAMH. Mm -hmm. And the detention order can either specify, in the past it either specified that they would be detained in a secure forensic unit or a general forensic unit. And so when a person first comes into the system, and it depends on the nature of their offense, it depends on how stable they are, they can be quite unstable, they can be untreated, they will go either to a secure or a minimum secure unit. And the difference between the two really, really turns on things like privileges. So a person on a secure unit will have very, very minimal off ward privileges. And if they have off ward privilege, they will frequently, by order of the board, be required to be escorted by staff or accompanied by staff. When they go to the general forensic unit, they generally would have access to greater privileges on the hospital grounds, into the community, either accompanied by staff or, when they become stable enough, on their own. Individuals can also be under a detention order and granted the privilege of living in the community. Mm-hmm. So a person can start, can can return to the community and start living in the community again while still under a detention order. And what that generally means is that the hospital and the board retain a high degree of oversight over that person. And so we saw in the news this summer, some instances of AWOLs Mm -hmm. uh, while individuals were either out on passes or it could be also living in the community, but under a detention order, the board retains, the board and the hospital retain a fairly high degree of oversight over the person And they can be returned to hospital by police if necessary if there are any problems like noncompliance with medication, drug or alcohol use, or a relapse in psychotic symptoms. And so how does that get affected?
0: So if um, someone's not taking their medication, does it have to come to the board
1: to get the police involved? Or can a family member call the police? Orders of the board, which are made every year, are aimed at protecting the safety of the public and so if medication non-compliance is an issue for the safety of the public that will typically get dealt with as part of the treatment plan so some individuals are on long-acting injections which allow their symptoms to stabilize over a long period of time so it can be dealt with either in the treatment plan or it can be dealt with uh, in the board's order so if a person is living in the community under board order, but is uh, becomes risky for a particular reason, that person can be brought back to hospital involuntarily and that can be affected by police. So that would typically be the way it happens. It's a stepwise system. Steps are taken incrementally and gradually, always with a view to what the level of stability of the offender is and what the potential risks to the public are. So whether a person is on a detention order or has been granted a conditional discharge and is moving toward absolute discharge at all times, the steps are slowly and carefully taken. So what the board does is uh, in its orders to outline what privileges the hospital is entitled to grant the individual. So the board determines the level of privileges that are legally available. And then the hospital has a high degree of discretion in determining whether the person is ready to exercise those privileges. So a person might be given the privilege of going into the community on their own in their review board order, but the hospital can, and it is the hospital's responsibility to determine whether the person is ready for that and the hospital will not send a person into the community without supervision if the person is not stable and there is that can create some risk of harm to the public.
0: Is the board's, I mean, I appreciate the board's, I guess, overriding responsibilities to ensure public safety. But is part of that sort of to ensure the rehabilitation or medical treatment of these offenders of these NCR um, individuals such that they can return to the community like
1: ultimately is a success story for the review board. The twin goals of the NCR system are public safety and rehabilitation and as I said at the beginning it's a treatment-based system Uh, it's aimed at rehabilitation it's not aimed at punishment and so if you think about it it's totally in the public interest to have those who are mentally ill treated, effectively treated, and rehabilitated to the community is far more effective as a response to their illness. If I could do this, I would really like to put a plug-in for the late John Kastner's documentary, NCR, Not Criminally Responsible. This is a documentary I have watched several times. It's excellent, it's very, very good. I think it's available online, and what it does is it shows the NCR process from a non-legal point of view, and it looks at both sides. I wanted to ask, um,
0: you mentioned that you've got five panel members that sit on these hearings, and the NCR offender is um, represented by counsel, and you've got the crown there.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it an adversarial process? In the most important Supreme Court of Canada decision, on these issues. It's called Winko. Uh, she wasn't Chief Justice at the time, but former Justice Beverly McLaughlin uh, styled the system as inquisitorial in nature rather than adversarial. And so it is accepted that the review board functions in some way as an inquisitorial system. And what's meant by that is that the responsibility for evidence gathering and decision making and management of the whole process and the system really rests with the board. Unlike in court, the board members at a hearing actively ask questions. And so the board is involved in the hearing. And it's, as I say, uh, it's the board's responsibility to make a finding of significant threat. And it's the board's responsibility to determine exactly what order will protect public safety and advance rehabilitation. That said, it is necessarily also a bit of an adversarial process for a couple of reasons. I'm not going to comment uh, further on this, except to note the presence of the Crown at the hearings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Crown is there to monitor the public safety aspect, and that can be adversarial at hearings. Mm -hmm. Also, it's the role of NCR counsel to represent his and her client and to do so in a way that optimizes uh, their prospects under the system. And so that can mean that anyone at the hearing, whether it's the board, the crown, or the NCR council, can challenge the key witness who is the NCR offender's primary psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. in many cases, attending psychiatrist. And so there is that concern about the consequences for the therapeutic relationship of the psychiatrist being the key witness at annual hearings. And so I would say that I don't have an answer to your question except to observe that it's really quite a mixed system and that it requires the review board and the person who chairs the review board hearing to be aware of those dynamics because the board does have a lot of authority to manage its own hearing process.
0: So I want to now move to question three. How does an NCR offender proceed through the system in order to be granted the freedom to return to the community? And part of this is understanding how the public, particularly victims of the conduct of the NCR uh, offender, can be assured that the NCR
1: offender does not represent a safety threat and that justice has been served. So it's very, very stepwise. Detention order, hospital detention, Uh, Moving through a ladder of privileges to living in the community with a greater number of oversights and checks for monitoring initially, moving through to fewer as a person becomes more stable, and then Absolute discharge. So the main protection is the stepwise nature of the system and the board oversight. The second thing is the significant threat threshold is taken very seriously by the hospitals, the forensic hospitals, the treatment teams, and it's also taken very seriously by the board. In fact, the board has been criticized for being too Mm -hmm. Um, risk-averse and so that's a second thing. A third thing, just from the point of view of accountability, I should probably mention that review board hearings are open to the public. We don't typically see reporters or members of the public at the hearings, but they are open to the public. Those who are the victims of offenses committed by NCR offenders are entitled to submit a vic- They're entitled to attend, of course. They're entitled to submit a victim impact statement, and they can be entitled to read that statement out at the. Uh, annual hearing of the NCR offender.
0: How often does that happen?
1: I would say that victim impact statements are not uncommon for certain kinds of offenses, but they usually take the form of a written statement, which becomes an exhibit at the annual hearing. In other instances, the victim's might choose to attend the hearing, a victim could be a family member. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, I have been chair of hearings where the victim has been granted leave to read their statement out to the board. And to what extent, I
0: appreciate you mentioned earlier that the Crown is there to um, bring the public safety control, if I can put it that way. But there's the other component about sort of the victim's understanding of what has happened, who this person is that has caused this pain to them, and the buy-in from the victims. Would it make sense in this informal hearing to give greater latitude or standing to victims so they can have some better understanding of who this person is and how this system operates? Or maybe not standing, but require that they receive some information uh, about this this person, uh, and I say it in the sense that people on the street may say, well, he got off, it's easy, he's not going to jail, but that might be the result of a lack of education. And to the extent that victims can understand this, and they can, I mean, it's not overly complex that the person's mentally ill, would it not be good for us to have greater participation by the victims in this kind of process where we know the person has committed it and now it's forward-looking? Hmm.
1: I guess I have mixed views about that, Anil. Um, one of the reasons is that that is not the purpose of this hearing. The purpose of this hearing is the circumstances of the NCR offender and how the balance should be met between public safety and rehabilitation with a view to the significant threat threshold. You mentioned you mentioned
0: risk averse a minute ago. Yes. Um,
1: one of the criticisms is,
0: as you said, being risk-averse, but particularly on serious offenses, and the concern is, um, amongst some of the NCR bar anyway, is that the board uh, might be, you know, not on my watch kind of thing. right? You know, we're uh, we're, right. we, we're going to be very conservative on the ladder, and it's going to take a long time to go up the steps of the ladder because he did something really bad yes. v- and an a horrific offense. And that's what I mean by saying that the yeah. offense yes. circumstances overwhelms the analysis of future risk. It's mm-hmm. my, my question. I mean, I appreciate it. I'm not asking you per- personally, but right. is there a danger in this system that right. there is this sort of not on my watch kind of thing?
1: Right. Well, we know even from recent news how quickly the forensic mental health system and the review boards can be subject to very, very significant criticism in the public domain. We saw that this summer. We saw the premier of this province saying something like, uh, throw the key away and so forth. And so I would not want to say that that influences the board in determining as a matter of law whether a person is a significant threat or not but the board is accountable to the public and i think part of the part of the dynamic is that there's still so much fear of the mentally ill there's so much stigma that ta- that attaches to those who are mentally ill that there is always the possibility if not the probability of distortion in the way events are reported and so I think that's a challenge not necessarily for the board but for the criminal justice system in how it addresses these difficult issues. Just on that point about risk averse or not the board is required as a matter of law to discharge a person once that person no longer meets the threshold of significant threat and it does happen that individuals fall away from their medication or get into difficulty in some other way and um, re-offend, you know, commit another criminal offense and they come back into the system. I guess I've always been of the view that this doesn't mean that the system failed. We hold mentally ill offenders to a different standard than we do anyone who goes to prison, is released once they've done their sentence and simply commits another criminal offense. The, there There's not nearly the same degree of concern that attaches to that as does to someone who's mentally ill who goes out and commits another offense. It's because we have a different set of standards and expectations and negative perceptions about those who are mentally ill. I'm not really sure how to change that. Question four. You've had a long
0: celebrated career as a legal academic and uh, at times practitioner and you've been on this board since 2013 in terms of all the work that you've done how would you characterize your just on a personal level your work at this board in in terms of its importance to you given all the scholarly work you've done in other areas how's how what has this meant to you being on this board
1: I actually care about this work very deeply. Actually, I'm getting emotional saying this. I care about this work deeply because it's difficult. It's important. And it's very, very human. It can be heartbreaking at one hearing and redemptive at the end of the day in another hearing. And I think what perhaps I respond to or what keeps me going is always there is the hope of rehabilitation. Always there is the hope of returning individuals to the community, and always there is the hope at the individual level that the board can assist in some small way in overseeing the treatment of mentally ill individuals, protecting the public, and advancing their rehabilitation. Professor Cameron, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to 4 Questions 4 by Osgoode Hall Law School.
1: We hope you'll join us again next time.